When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, Finn Harper from Open City here. Just to say before the show that this episode of The Lundown suffers from poor audio quality on Sean Adams' track. That's because the microphone he was wearing was not turned on properly at the time. You can still hear what he's saying and hear his brilliant analysis of the London local elections, but the audio quality is not what it should be, and we're sorry about that. Cost of living crisis set to dominate London's local elections. Contentious plans to extend right to buy are dusted off once again. New data reveals the sickening scale of air pollution in the capital. And the all-party suburban task force calls for new limits on permitted development rights. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. This week, we're recording from London Communications Agency, that's LCA in Covent Garden, in front of a live studio audience. My guests this week are LCA Board Director Jenna Goldberg and the writer and architectural designer Sean Adams. Welcome to the show. Polling stations will be opening this week for the much-anticipated local elections. All London Borough Council seats are up for grabs, as, as well as a sprinkling of mayoral elections taking place in Hackney, Lewisham, Newham, Tower Hamlets and Croydon. The elections involving around 4,350 seats being contested across England have the power to decide who is responsible for essential services such as social care, bin collections and planning in each area. It is a vote that has been widely reported across the regional and national media. And John Elledge, uh, who is a two-time guest on the London, uh, published a very handy explainer in The New Statesman, uh, featuring a kind of trademark smattering of historic maps showing how London voting has changed throughout the decades. Opinion polls have indicated that this time round, Conservatives could be headed for their worst election results since the borough boundaries were redrawn in 1965. This follows a perfect storm of Partygate, sleaze allegations and rising bills, uh, that cost of living crisis uh, which has left the party reportedly out of favour with Londoners. A new survey conducted by Delta Poll for LCA put Labour 30 percentage points ahead of the Conservatives, with Labour on 50% and the Conservatives trailing behind with just 23. 
a look specifically at inner London pushed the lead to an even greater extreme, with Labour on 63 and the Conservatives at just 13, making Labour's lead amount to a staggering 50%. And several key blue seats, such as Westminster and Wandsworth, are also looking shaky. Um, as the first local election since 2018, which saw Labour achieve its biggest win in 45 years, with 44% of the vote, there has been a lot of speculation about whether the party can replicate its success of four years ago. Eyes are on Barnet, Wandsworth and Westminster, three boroughs which polls indica indicate could slip out of the Conservatives' control. Uh, Barnet, nestled up in leafy North London, has never been Labour before. However, after several years of intense house building, it's now the capital's most populated borough, fueling speculation that Barnet could turn red for the first time. Uh, Wandsworth, which is the home of the iconic Battersea Power Station, Tooting Beck Lido and the forested Putney Heath, uh, could also swing to the left, ending four decades of Conservatives' dominance uh, as constituencies weigh up the benefits of low council tax versus the party gate debacle. Uh, one Conservative minister who was out campaigning in the borough said, quote, it doesn't matter if we get great gains or even win overall control of a few other areas. If Wandsworth falls, that will be the narrative of the night. Finally, Westminster, another borough which has never even flirted with the Labour Council, has been tipped as one to at least pay attention to uh, after a number of rows brought the Conservatives into unfavourable headlines. Uh, regular listeners to the show will be well aware of the scandal surrounding Marble Arch Mound, uh, which saw the Council blow £6 million of public money on an artificial hill scantily clad in a, f in a few small trees. Uh, but the council also found itself embroiled in local controversy over plans to create a new pedestrian-friendly plaza at Oxford Circus. How can that be controversial? Um, across all the boroughs, however, the issue most pertinent to London is the cost of living crisis, uh, which is forcing many of the capital's most poorest constituents to make the impossible choice between food or heating. Polls open Thursday from 7am to 10pm, and the results are expected to come through in the early hours of Friday morning. So. Jenna, one of the biggest issues facing Londoners right now is the cost of living crisis. Uh, inflation's soaring, energy prices are reaching eye-watering levels, yet benefits and wages are still remaining low. Uh, what sort of policies are being offered across London to allay these cost of living concerns? Um, and how much of an impact is this really going to have on the elections? I think I'll answer the impact point first, because I have to say, in my life, for better or worse, my work has been dominated by these local elections for the last few months. And if I were to put together one of those old-fashioned word clouds of the phrases I've been using the most, I would probably go cost of living crisis, party gate as my kind of top two phrases. So those two very national issues, obviously very much linked to the National Conservative government, have probably been at the fore of the whole election campaign, uh, particularly well in London and across the whole country and on all sides of the political spectrum as well. So in impact terms, yes, it's the number one issue. Our own polling at LCA has shown that over half of Londoners, 52% in fact, put cost of living as the number one thing that they're concerned about coming into this election. And just to put that in a bit of context, context that's quite a new thing. So in previous issues, sort of back in autumn, winter, that phrase wouldn't have really featured. There might have been other economic factors, affordable housing often features, for example, but not cost of living per se. So I think that's, you know, it's something we're all grappling with, many of us, um, for the first time, because actually it's the first time in really a generation that we're facing 
you know, high inflation, soaring energy bills. Um, uh, and it's, you know, it's actually pretty scary, I think, for, for, for many of us. So what impact has that had on the election campaign? I think one of the things we've looked at is the, the messaging that the parties are putting out. So as you noted, Labour's at a peak uh, in London. It holds uh, the political control of 21 London boroughs, sort of its best result ever uh, from 2018. And it is campaigning very much on what it calls the conservative cost of living crisis. Unsurprisingly, Labour's campaign strategy, particularly in London, is to make this local election all about national issues. So, you know, all their campaign literature is cost of living crisis and party gate over and over again. Um, what do the Tories have to fight back with? That's uh, often council tax. So the Tories are going to make, make this about local issues because Labour in control of 21 boroughs. Uh, Tories are hoping to kind of challenge those majorities where they can. So they're going to campaign on local issues and council tax is the obvious kind of rejoinder to the cost of living crisis or it's the lever that can be pulled at local level. Um, although actually when you drill down to it, it's not actually a huge amount of power that they have over people's uh, kind of overall income and you know how they feel about the bills coming through their letterboxes and inboxes these days. Um, so, you know, many boroughs, for example, uh, many marginal boroughs that you've just mentioned, Merlin, Wandsworth, Westminster, have pledged to freeze council tax uh, this time around. And in Wandsworth, Labour has also pledged to freeze council tax. So you can see how the cost of living is playing out in the election at that local level. Um, and it's also worth noting, of course, that after 10 years of austerity, two years at the front line of a pandemic response, local authorities really can't afford to freeze council tax. <laughs> I mean, I think it's really fascinating the way you're describing it. Because obviously, you know, the cost of living crisis is, is a kind of new crisis, a new word that's out there. We've been familiar with the housing crisis for a decade or even maybe more than a decade. Is there a case that a lot of the cost of living crisis does relate to the built environment? And are there specific policies out there which possibly go beyond just council tax and show things that could be done that make the cost of living cheaper? For example, um, active travel policies or like low traffic neighbourhoods, which is a kind of big debate that's going on. Um, social housing provision, I think in Wandsworth that's a, an electoral issue. And then the things like the response to the climate crisis. Because it's like, if I have to run air conditioning in my flat every summer, that's going to cost me hundreds of pounds. And I mean, is there, is there, it's, is it apparent that councils are going diving into this stuff, this built environment stuff, relating it to the social uh, cost of living crisis? I mean, I thought it was interesting. You know, was it today or yesterday morning? I think when Boris, it was the Susanna Reid interview where he was hearing about the the old lady who was forced to ride the bus all day because she couldn't heat her home, and and then he took credit for the fact that she could ride the bus for free, uh, somewhat <laughs> willfully missing the point there. So I think you know, active travel as a kind of sticking plaster for the energy crisis is possibly a little bit of a minefield. Um, but, you know, colleagues and, and, and I were, were brainstorming about actually what innovative or optimistic policies could come out of the built environment sector as a result of the cost of living crisis. And, and one area is, you know, where, say, house builders like, you know, volume house builders, Barrett, Taylor Wimpy, those, those sorts have previously, say, offered to pay first-time buyer's stamp duty um, to entice them to buy homes. Maybe they'll offer to pay two years' worth of energy bills or invest in solar panels or insulation or heat pumps or innovative technology. And actually, clearly, that would be, on a macro level, really welcome. 
Um, and then, you know, clearly a livable city is almost by definition a cheaper city to live in, where yes, you have a public transport system that's well funded, uh, you know, a city where you don't need to own a car, pay tax, pay you know, car insurance, can hop on a bus or a train that is affordable in a, in a sustainable way, um, would be an excellent uh, mitigation of the cost of living crisis. I think though, with election campaigning, sadly, you don't get too many people thinking that long term, um, as we've seen, I think, with you know, all the politics around low traffic neighbourhoods, for example, which, you know, it is a very brave candidate that gets between a voter and their car, for example, in most London boroughs. Sean, um, I mean, how do you think the role of local councils has changed in recent years? Because um, a lot of things have changed. Like we've had the pandemic, um, there's wider social, economic, environmental crises. Um, do, you, do you think the role of what people expect from councils has changed? And does that mean that potentially people are going to engage in this, this election this week in a lot more serious way? Firstly, we've got to kind of like explain to everyone what the local council actually does, because I think a lot of people don't actually know what the local council does. Um, and especially when we're thinking about the pandemic um, and the kind of not being able to leave our houses, what does the local council do for the people? So they sort out our parks, our libraries, our roads, our bin collections. So there's a wealth of things day to day they actually do. So in a way, I think you could argue that uh, the local, uh, like looking at your local councillors, could, people could argue that for some people, for their kind of day-to-day -day life, that could be more impactful than the actual general election because they're looking at things that are affecting them daily, whilst a general election, because it's a national scale, some people may argue, well, I can't change this or this, this isn't going to affect me if the bins don't go on Wednesday, that's not going to, like, that's actually going to affect me. So I think for a lot of people, it's, like, really important that they go out tomorrow and they actually vote because they can make quite substantial changes in their in their local environment. If we're thinking about how kind of public space has been used over the last two years, I think it's incredibly important that you think about who like what are the what are, are your local council councillors standing for? What opportunities are there? Um, what what funding might they even be trying to provide for people in the local in the local area? Because I think that's incredibly important because there's a lot of opportunities that local councillors are actually trying to put out there to, to support people that people actually don't know about. Um, so I think that's in something that's incredibly important. Um, so I went to secondary school in, in, in Wandsworth and seeing how Wandsworth has been uh, a, a Tory stronghold for, for nearly four decades and, and now the Labour Party is slowly um, starting to, well not slowly, I mean if you look at the last um, election, they, they won I believe 19 seats so they've made quite substantial progress. I don't know whether I think they'll actually snag um, Wandsworth but it's interesting to see how the seats are really changing there and as people are becoming more um, more kind of um, educated and, un and understanding what's happening in their actual boroughs, we're seeing that there's going to be a, a real shift. Um, I think also Westminster quite interesting one as well because if you <laughs> if you look at the mound, I don't know what happened over there. Like I honestly don't. And again, people are losing they're losing confidence in in um, their like their local councillors. They're looking they're losing confidence in in the government, and they really want change. And I think this is something that we're going to increasingly see. We're going to see a lot of people that may not have um, typically voted uh, decide, you know what, I actually want to, to vote now. I want to, I want to make a change because um, if we look at a, a prime minister that's making policies and, and kind of getting caught for not following them, like 
we need to get him out of power, and we need to get so a, a lot of a lot of a lot of his um, the, the seats that his party have. Um, we need to take them and, and remove them. I mean, I think it's interesting that you're talking about the way what councils can do because it is a kind of crunch moment. And a lot of the things that we're facing are interrelated, right? So it's like we, we hear a lot about like individual policies and like they've only got one kind of lever that they can pull. But um, if we look at like the, cri the cost of living crisis, the housing crisis, climate crisis, and boosting diversity and inclusion, um, it would rather seem like what would be the, 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 the kind of dream policy that could be on offer what could be the kind of thing that if councils were going to transform their offer to voters what would they do to really take these crises on head on way i don't necessarily think there's one direct policy but i think what what we need to really see is just more community investment in every in every sense of the word so actually trying to for, for example in my in my borough so i live in mitchell um and my borough is merton We've kind of just seen everything get completely stripped away. Like for the most part, don't, people don't really know what the local, like the local councillors do anymore because they're like everything's been taken away from us. Um, what we need to see is support when it comes to kind of, especially coming out of the pandemic. Of course, there are national issues that are, uh, they need to deal with, such as um, energy, like the energy crisis. But I think if we're talking locally. I think each each particular borough needs to deal with loneliness, the, the implications of the energy crisis and, and um, council tax going up because we're seeing an increase of, of um, people having to go to food banks. So we need to see investment put into, into um, like food banks and, and, and allowing people to, to get resources uh, from, their, from their local community. We, and we, we also kind of really need like this collective spirit and that could come from investing money into local community centres, which can facilitate many of these things, such as um, food provisions. Because I'm directly seeing these kind of issues um, locally, and I'm sure it's something that uh, throughout the, the 32 boroughs um, that we're kind of seeing widespread. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is reportedly considering an ambitious, if albeit very familiar, reboot of Margaret Thatcher's divisive right to buy, giving a fresh wave of people renting from housing associations the opportunity to purchase their homes at a discount. The story was enthusiastically heralded by the Daily Telegraph over the weekend and was picked up by the Daily Mail, New Statesman, Times and The Guardian, who either rehashed the original article or ran their own critical analyses of the policy. Uh, the news comes more than four decades after the 1980 Housing Act enabled five million council tenants to buy their homes from their local authorities. Uh, heralded by fans as one of Thatcher's most defining policies, it is also being condemned by critics for contributing to today's housing crisis and the inflated housing market. For example, so far just 5% of all council homes sold through right to buy have been replaced. Now, just seven years after former Prime Minister David Cameron tried and failed to deliver a pretty much identical right to buy scheme for housing associations, the Conservatives are saying the resurrected idea could help generation rent and give millions of people the opportunity to step onto the housing ladder. Uh, if viable, and it's important to note the previous attempt completely flopped, uh, the policy, which is reportedly being written up by number 10 officials, could see up to 2.5 million households become eligible to buy their houses at discounted prices of up to 70%. 
Housing experts fear this could replicate the affordable housing shortage creating by the legacy of the original right to buy scheme and have called instead for an increase in affordable house building and funding. Um, Chief Executive of Shelter, Polly Neat, said this could not be a worse time to sell off what remains of our last truly affordable social homes. Um, Neat went on to say the cost of living crisis means more people are on the brink of homelessness than home ownership. Um, she said, right to buy has already torn a massive hole in our social housing stock as less than 5% of the homes sold off have ever been replaced. Uh, these half-baked plans have been tried before and they've failed. Um, the government is also considering the use of taxpayers' money in the form of housing benefits to assist those seeking a mortgage under the new proposals. Um, it could also mean that rules, uh, meaning the number of affordable houses developers are required to build, are axed uh, in favour of the creation of an infrastructure fund to be used by councils to finance their own projects. Um, current legislation around right to buy allows most tenants in council housing the opportunity to buy their homes at a discount. However, housing association tenants have limited discounts and are only eligible to buy property acquired by the association since 1997. Sean, what is right to buy and what sort of an impact has it had on the built environment and social economic reality for many people in London? Well, firstly, let me explain what right to buy actually is. So there's a policy that came into effect in 1980. So it was a Margaret Thatcher policy. Um, but what is quite interesting about it is it, it gives people the opportunity, well, it gave people the opportunity and continues to give people the opportunity to actually purchase their um, council house at a reduced price. Which, in principle, you it sounds it sounds right, but like it sounds okay. <laughs> in principle, some people would argue, but the problem is that with with the people actually being able to purchase um, those properties, at the time, the councils weren't actually able to then invest the money that was that was spent for the people buying the property to then replace the building stock. So you've got, as Merlin kind of alluded to. 5% of the existing building stock is actually being replaced. So what is happening, what, what continues to happen is these buildings are getting are, are purchased and then there's no buildings for, for new people. And I think with this, with this new policy, it will, it, it will be slightly different because now um, Boris Johnson will be looking at housing associations. So people that um, live in property owned um, by a housing association will be able to get a, a discounted price, but it'll be the same, it'll be the same issue because people are going to then buy the properties owned by the housing associations and then there won't be a, they won't build enough new buildings so there'll be a lack of of, of houses um of, available and i think this is incredibly problematic because also it's gonna i believe is gonna just make the, the housing prices um rocket and especially for for younger people that are, are going to be first-time buyers um it's going to be incredibly difficult for them to um, to get on the, on, the, on the property ladder. I think what, is, what seems quite interesting is if you look at the cabinet, everyone in the cabinet is probably um, a, landlord, um, a landlord. So they're looking at this and thinking this, this, is, this will probably be okay. Well, in the, in the Conservative Party anyway. Um, but I think this is, this is riddled with, with so many issues. And if we look at the existing social housing stock, it, you, you guys should look at um, a social <laughs> act activist called Kwojo um, Tony Boa. He's been going around the UK and looking at the existing social housing um, stock, and it's horrendous. It is so it's so terrible. The conditions that people are living in um, is is crazy, and there's already not enough investment going into into social housing. And and once this social housing is, is getting sold off, 
where are all of these people going to go? And I think that, that's the real question. Where are these people going to go? And I think there's no, there's no answer at, at, at the moment. I think this is what is, is incredibly, incredibly concerning. Um, in 2015, they tried to, um, the Conservatives tried to have this, this policy in their manifesto, and it failed. I mean, I hope, again, it fails because I don't understand how this would, how, how this really will, um, will benefit people. I, th I think, I don't want to be cynical, but we've kind of seen already the effects of, of what this has done. Um, and I think it's just going to be history repeating itself. Um, and especially when, again, when Boris Johnson talks about like supporting young people and trying to give young people opportunities. I mean, in the last two years, like we've seen the A, the A levels fiasco. We've seen um, um, Marcus Rashford have to give young people school meals. So, so what now? We're saying that Boris Johnson just going to randomly give young people a house? I don't believe it. Like I honestly don't believe it. And I think what's really going to happen is the the price of these houses are going to again rocket, and then young people are going to be pushed out. Of, of London. Now look, we're clearly hearing it's a very contentious proposal. It's very, um, but also it is a really headline-grabbing proposal. I mean, it got picked up so widely and discussed, whether you like it or not. Um, and I just think that that's interesting. I mean, obviously, we probably have more of a housing policy which is headline-grabbing than has substance. Maybe that's something we can talk about a bit more later. But thinking about housing more broadly, you know, why is it that we're we're always having these headline? Ha policies which focus seem to focus first and foremost on increasing home ownership um, which pretty much means sustaining or inflating the property market um, while so little is being done to support those who are most in need Jenna what is it about our sort of political settlement that's got us stuck in this for so long I think partly it's just a national cultural identity um, probably goes back to the doomsday book that you know there's sort of you know there's an Englishman's or a Britishman's uh, right to own a home, own his kingdom. And I use the pronouns there quite purposefully because I think it's probably a kind of patriarchal thing as well as anything else. Um, <laughs> but um, so, you know, partly it's, it's hundreds of years worth of cultural identity um, in a way that doesn't exist in other countries where, you know, the rented sector, private rented sector is much healthier, more secure, less transient than our own. Um, but also, I think um, it's a lot to do with Conservative Party ideology as well. And there's a really instructive piece um, that I go back to over and over again from The Economist from about this time last year, actually, March 2021. Um, uh, it's, it's, a it's about the Red Wall and uh, the suburbs around the Red Wall and the home ownership uh, levels that have risen considerably over the last few decades in those areas because housing is cheap there remember we we often look at this through a very london lens of housing being kind of extortionately expensive and just ridiculous barriers uh, to entry to the kind of private sale housing market but in places you know uh, suburbs of say sheffield or places like that actually those barriers are not quite the same and you've got these places popping up these sort of barrett style uh, suburbs where you know, it's quite aspirational to think for people who say have a household, a combined household income of 
let's say sort of 30 to 40,000 pounds, which gets you nowhere and nothing in London, you know, not even a parking space, frankly, uh, or a garden shed, but, you know, could get you a very nice two up, two down, three up, two down, uh, detached house with a, a driveway and a little garden. Um, there may not be much cultural life around you, but that's okay because you've got your home and your job that you can now do from your, your living room or your kitchen most of the time. Um, and I think understanding that and that sort of that voter helps you to unlock why the Conservative Party have done so well over the last decade and why they continue to put forward policies like right to buy, which, as you say, is as much about grabbing headlines. The timing of it, obviously, clearly a few days before the local election, you know, pretty it's pretty naked politics. Um, but it's a bit, it's about aspiration that people can own their own homes and you know we mustn't think of this through necessarily a London lens um, you know I, I also think you asked earlier Merlin you asked Sean you know what one policy could kind of councils put forward um, you know that was solved this cost of living crisis clearly you know building loads of affordable housing building you know going on a kind of mass council house building spree would be you know, that would be the golden ticket in many ways because we, you know, there's such a shortage. Um, but that is much, it's much harder to win votes because people don't like to think of themselves as in need of council homes. They like to think of themselves as on the path to security and home ownership. Now, you can kind of unpick the premise of that from a kind of cultural perspective, but that's what the Conservative Party sort of policy and ideology is all about. New research reveals that 97% of UK homes are affected by dirty air, with Slough, London and Leeds among the worst locations exhibiting pollution levels far exceeding World Health Organisation limits. Uh, almost everyone in Britain experiences one of the three main air pollutants at higher levels than WHO recommends. Uh, and 70% of addresses are subject to harmful levels of all three, something that was reported uh, by The Guardian uh, and picked up quite widely across social media. Um, research conducted by the Central Office of Public Interest and Imperial College London created the most detailed pollution map of the UK to date um, from combining 20,000 measurements with state-of-the-art computer modelling. Um, this information is all now publicly available via a website. It's catchily named addresspollution.org. On this website, you can check the pollutants for your postcode. Like, who actually wants to do that? Um, it won't affect the house price. Uh, how polluted it is if you live in London um, but it is something a lot of people have been doing and sharing on social media so it turns out people are keen to share how bad the air is they breathe um, a quick search on that website reveals that 66% of addresses in London are in the top 10% of the most polluted homes nationally um, so, Jenna, um, with each new report that comes out about climate change and the environment, the situation seems to get more and more dire. Um, it's estimated that air pollution causes more than 6 million premature deaths from heart attacks, strokes, diabetes and respiratory diseases. Um, with the local elections taking place, why is it that this climate crisis, the air pollution crisis, more specifically not front and centre of candidates' campaigns and manifestos? I think it is in places, actually. So I think you, I've seen plenty of campaign literature, um, particularly in marginal boroughs, as you might expect. So in Barnet, which, uh, for example, where actually the climate crisis has been 
quite central to um, candidates' manifesto or parties' manifesto pledges. Um, but as I said earlier, it's, it's a brave candidate who gets between a voter and their car, particularly in the more suburban areas. But I think, you know, there is some really exciting leadership on this front in the London political scene. So, I, you know, I like to be optimistic about these things. And I think there have been moments, particularly in the last few years, where I think we have seen this kind of notch its way up the agenda. Um, and then, you know, just to give some examples um, of where I think councils are doing uh, a good job of, of leading on this. So Georgia Gould, uh, leader of Camden Council, um, has in her favour and, you know, to her benefit, a kind of, you know, a fairly safe Labour borough that helps. She's not overly concerned about losing an election. Um, but they have declared a climate emergency in the borough. And so all of their planning policy, all of their kind of policies are predicated on the fact that they need to do something drastic. So, you know, whether that's car-free developments, whether that's um, low traffic neighbourhoods, whether that's cycle schemes, um, they are investing in that. And there's plenty of other examples from lots of other London boroughs uh, on that front. I also think it's quite interesting and another sort of slightly optimistic note to to, um, to play here, you know, Sadiq Khan as Mayor of London, I think there are signs that he is looking to make the kind of the green agenda or, or certainly London's global positioning as a green city, as a leading green city. I think he's looking to make that part of his legacy and I think we've seen some signs that he's taken on some quite difficult or, um, you know, potentially quite unpopular policies and push them through, you know, the kind of road user charging being first among them. But I think, I think it's probably unfair to say it's not part of the political agenda. Yeah, it possibly isn't quite as high up as many of us would like it to be. Um, and it's sensitive because there are certainly, as we've said, parts of London, the more suburban parts of London, perhaps, where, you know, in the lead up to a local election, certainly it's felt that it will lose votes. And we've seen that play out over and over again with controversies around low traffic neighbourhoods to the point that they've been scrapped in many, many boroughs over the last few months. Um, but it's, it's certainly there. And I would like to think that after the election, we might see that come back up the, uh, back up the agenda again. I mean, look, we're talking about the, the, the global issue of the climate crisis, but we know it doesn't affect us all equally. So research from City Hall has shown that communities with higher levels of deprivation or a higher proportion of people from a non-white ethnic background are more likely to be exposed to higher levels of air pollution. Um, so there's a question to Sean. Why is it that some communities are disproportionately impacted by things like poor air quality and water pollution and general pollution, particularly in big cities like London? Um, and what needs to happen so certain communities do not bear an unfair share of the brunt of this environmental disaster? I think if we kind of um, think about some of the stuff that I mentioned before, so the, food, the lack of food provisions, um, if we're looking at like, housing associations and like... Um, housing stock for some of the most like disadvantaged people in London. These are all issues that are only getting are only getting worse with with the um, the problems of, of poor air quality. So if you're from if you're from a disadvantaged um, area and and you're you're from like a working class background and and you don't already um, you're you, you don't have much money and then your child has has asthma or is, is, is dealing with kind of um, respiratory problems, these are all kind of worsening the, the situation. I think when we talk about air quality, for a lot of people, it's like an invisible issue because we can't, for the most part, we can't see it. So we look at 
we look at other cities, so we look at the Beijings, the Shanghai's, where there's like a massive smog cloud of, of um, air pollution, but that doesn't change the fact that we have some of the highest air pollution in, in London. In London, we've got this weird culture where it's like, um, when it comes to air pollution, oh, if we, like, if we get rid of cars and, and people just pay a bit more, then that will be fine, but that doesn't solve the problem. So like, making people pay money for you less just makes people feel like, well, if I pay more money, I can get away with this and it's fine. I think we really need to see an overhaul of these policies. So how can we really um, reduce reduce the, the emissions as opposed to just saying, you know what, you pay more and then you can get out of it. Because if you look at the, the climate targets that we that we kind of set ourselves to for 2050, it's actually laughable. Like, there's nothing that we're doing in this in this country that makes me ever think that we're anywhere near close to hitting any of those targets. And when you hear people talking about the climate crisis, it's almost as if people think that it's something that's kind of further further down the line. Like, oh, well, London's now hotter. Like, it's great. But then you look at other places in the world, there's forest fires that are completely devastating terrains. We're seeing, um, like, locations that should not be getting huge flooding that, that's what's happening I think we really need to to start to get to grips with what is the impact of this and start to look at like not, not only wait for us to kind of visibly see something but make make a difference and again if we're speaking about the people that are the most disadvantaged in society like there's so many things that are that our policies are already are ready doing that are kind of throwing them under the bus. So we really need to be looking at those people and and and, and like recognizing that we need to be helping them. At the turn of the millennium, the government appointed an urban task force to tackle the decline of Britain's inner cities and chart a new course to deliver what was dubbed to be an urban renaissance. Um, it was a defining moment with profound implications for city centres, uh, but the countryside was left out and so too were vast swathes of suburbia, which actually account for where most people live in the UK. Around 20 years on, a new all-party task force, uh, co-chaired by E. Hilling MP Rupert Huck and Hillingdon MP David Simmons was created to identify new mechanisms to support suburbia's long-term sustainability. Uh, their report, which published this week, tries to grapple with how we define suburban while also exploring the issues facing our suburban areas and making suggestions as to what we can do to tackle them. England's suburbs have long been popular places to live and many became even more desirable during the pandemic. Uh, typically cheaper than city centres, they accommodate the largest resident populations of working age and in much of the nation are experiencing high levels of population growth. The cross-party task force advised by Open City Director Finn Harper they identified six key recommendations to ensure meaningful, positive change in those long neglected communities. Uh, from the digitization of public engagement to a greater understanding of the impacts of COVID-19 on evolving people's work life, uh, the report highlights several areas for further development. One of the more specific recommendations calls for a limiting of permitted development rights. Uh, these contentious exemptions from planning permissions, um, something we've covered a lot on the show before, 
uh, especially the episodes with Ella Jessel. Um, these can be used to transform offices and factories into housing without planning permission. Um, despite often resulting in substandard homes, the perverted development regime was until very recently earmarked for a significant expansion and was something uh, which could pose a threat to the suburbs, including, according to the task force. Um, Sean, the foreword of the report, it says, The suburbs are a rich seam in our national culture and should no longer be neglected. They have too often been overlooked by policymakers. For the past 30 years, the debate about the form and function of our town and country has been structured almost exclusively around that simple distinction. Uh, we've been drawn to extremes, focusing on urban centres and countryside at the expense of the spaces in between. This is to our detriment. As somebody who grew up in a suburban part of London, what do you make of this? Does the task force have a point? Um, are we experiencing a crisis of the suburbs? And what does that all look like on the ground? Um, I think... I think if we, if we begin with looking at the effects of the pandemic, I think what is quite fascinating is that we went from kind of all, any, any, well, anyone that lived in the suburbs kind of rushing into the city centre, being in, in central London, but now no one really wants to be there. Everyone kind of wants to be on the periphery of London. And it's interesting to think that we're actually seeing um, the kind of this this kind of new love for the high street in, in a way so we're seeing now that people don't want to travel into the city center they want to be close to home um especially if we're thinking about the workplace as well people don't want to have to kind of have these long commutes we're seeing an increase of like these kind of pop-up co-working locations where people are, are going and, and working um instead of kind of traveling into into the city but when we talk about the suburbs i think it's quite interesting that you say about this tarful because I had no clue about this. I think people that <laughs> people that live in the suburbs, I think I don't think they know much about this. So I'm quite interested to find out like who is who are they going to be engaging with these conversations? Because it's often the people that don't even live in these areas making the decisions for these people, or like these intangible moments that the local community understand as being quite vital and crucial to to community life normally get overlooked so i can imagine if there's not people on this panel that can actually speak to the local communities that are kind of there on the day-to-day -day, we're going to see this transformation of the city center just being replicated on it onto the suburban areas and then we're just going to see this expansion of people continuously getting pushed out um until the peri until they're on literally on the periphery mm. and they're no longer there's no longer really all of these suburban a areas. It's just the city centre just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think that's quite problematic. Like, the, uh, the idea of that seems super problematic. So, Jenna, like, obviously, with, with huge respect to the task force, having read through the report, many of the recommendations do seem quite nuanced. Okay, so they talk about things like tipping points, which could transform an area, uh, greater digital engagement in planning, an evolution of employment policies, um, and a call for national guidance on small planning applications. But one of the most concrete issues uh, we clearly highlighted uh, relates to permitted development rights, a big, uh, big topic. Um, so what are permitted development rights? Um, how are they negatively impacting London and the suburban landscapes in particular? And you have the final question of the show. So P PDR, Permitted Development Rights, are regulations that essentially allow uh, developers or landowners to fast track conversions from, uh, from office space, from commercial space into homes um, and basically circumvent the kind of quite arduous planning process. Um, and it's a little bit more similar to, say, the US zoning approach to planning 
rather than the kind of site-by-site -site approach that we take here. They're controversial in London, they're controversial in lots of places, but they're controversial in particularly certain parts of London because, uh, well, firstly, if you convert somewhere from commercial space to a home, that is at the cost of jobs. Um, which clearly are required uh, to make a place thrive and to give people opportunities. Um, and also because they circumvent the kind of usual planning process, that often means a kind of lack of quality uh, in the conversion itself. So, and you know, actually my house happens to back onto one of these developments and it still very much looks like an office building, uh, but it is clearly somewhere that people are living. And, you know, there are many architects in this audience, I'm sure, but those two things are not the same and they need to be designed differently and they're often not very pleasant places to live or to see uh, or to live around. Um, so those are the sort of reasons that they're particularly controversial and, and from a sort of London planning perspective and for those in the borough, planning officers within the boroughs who, you know, have taken offence to um, the uh, sort of the implementation of PDR, um, you know, much of the argument will be around the character of an area. You take somewhere that was retail, somewhere that was offices, um, had a real kind of daytime economy, you turn that into housing, you're changing the character of what was, say, a high street or what was, say, a kind of bustling town centre. Um, so there are many exemptions to PDR, Westminster, um, other sort of central London boroughs have applied for and got exemptions from PDR, but, but there are many who have applied and not been granted exemptions too. So they're quite a, a sensitive policy. And certainly in those suburban areas as well, that like Croydon, I think, is one that they tried to outlaw them or they managed to outlaw them, but they'd had so many. Um, it was kind of after the horse had bolted. Yeah, and, you know, you can see the sort of arguments both ways, particularly in the suburbs. If these are, you know, housing is, it, we're in desperate need of new homes, the planning process is arduous, we have a three-tiered, very complicated planning system that takes a long time and a lot of money to navigate, uh, and, you know, if offices or shop fronts are not being used, then you can see the argument for kind of quickly converting them to homes. But I think it, it links to a point that, that Sean was making about the kind of character of the suburbs and them being different to city centres. And one of the things that, you know, I'm a real Londonophile, I suppose, is what you would call it. I'm a city girl. But I think the thing that often is not talked about in a particularly constructive way is density. And the density brings opportunity. And the problem with suburbs, or certainly kind of, if you like, not failing, that's too strong a word, but suburbs that are probably, you know, could do with a bit of life back into them, is with lack of density comes, you know, lack of opportunity for jobs and culture, because there simply isn't the kind of weight of people there to make that a viable venture. It's also not a very green or sustainable way to design places, to design a place. You know, suburbs are fairly reliant on cars because you simply don't have the density to make them walkable. Um, so I think, you know, actually kind of reframing how we think about suburbs and uh, the benefits of density, which is something I kind of often bang my head, uh, you know, against brick walls about when I'm trying to, you know, talking to communities who are opposed to 
new development because, you know, we don't want all those new people in the area. And I'm thinking, why not? That's a great thing. You know, I live in London. I've chosen to be in a busy, thriving place. So have you. New people are a net good thing because they're bringing with them, you know, cynically and nakedly money, but also <laughs> plenty of exciting opportunities. More people means more culture, more restaurants, more leisure, more shops, more community facilities, you know, Amdram productions, youth groups, all of that stuff. And I don't think we kind of quite talk about that in a, in a confident enough way. <laughs> Rant over. <laughs> that brings us nicely to the end of the show. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Jenna, for being on the show. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Um, and where can listeners go to keep up to speed on all the things you're writing or publishing? Do they follow you on socials? Uh, you can follow us at LDNcoms on Twitter and sign up to our free weekly e-bulletin on London and London issues via our website, londoncommunications.co.uk. Uh, and our insight team, uh, Steph and Emily, who are here tonight in particular, uh, pump out a huge amount of brilliant insight and content for us on a weekly basis. Sean, where should your loyal followers go? Um, you can catch me on Instagram and Twitter and my handle is underscore Sean, S-H-A-W-N, underscore Adams, A-D-A-M-S, underscore. Um, and check out Poor Collective, so check out the work that we're doing with young people so you can find us on Twitter and Instagram um, as at Poor, so P-O-O-R, underscore collective. Fantastic, thanks to you both. Thank you, everyone in the audience. Cheers. been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.